G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. We've been talking about creation for the last couple of months, but what we haven't done is a study of the most well-known word translated as create. We talked about definitions of creation, but there's a particular term used in scripture for creation, isn't it, Tim? Yeah, okay, let's do that. In Hebrew, it's called bara. You might recall from our third episode, which we called a show about nothing, that the ancient world, and by extension the Bible as a product of that milieu, didn't consider material presence to equate with existence. There was this idea that existence was defined in terms of function. From that we reason that if you don't know what it is, it doesn't exist. If it's supposed to do something but it isn't doing it, then it isn't being the thing that does the thing. If it doesn't function as part of a greater whole, then it's non-functional and therefore it doesn't exist. When we consider existence in that way, it means that we need a definition of creation that's consistent with that. We say that creation is bringing something into existence or causing something to exist. Now that's true, but for many of us we're thinking about physics and chemistry and genetics. We're thinking about rocks and balls of gas in space, dinosaurs and apes and breeds of dogs. We're trying to reconcile that with God making everything out of absolutely zero material. And that focus on the material of the universe is blinding us to a universe of meaning and purpose. That's why on this podcast, instead of going directly into a study of the word for creation straight away in our very first episodes, I wanted to show how creation looks in ancient Near Eastern literature, and then how the biblical text actually describes creation in several different examples. Because I've already said this a lot, and I'm going to keep saying it, Genesis 1 is not telling us a story of material origins. It's the ancient world. Nobody cares where dirt comes from or if you can breed cats to make dogs. They're interested in who's in charge, because the gods are real, and things are not right. And that means somebody upstairs is upset. So we want to know how to make it right. That's all I care about. And that's the focus of this text in the primeval history. So why is creation important? It's important precisely because it does address the primary concerns of its audience. It's important because it isn't giving some useless information that nobody back then was asking for. We're dealing with an original audience that was chiefly concerned with the question of how the world got to be the way that it was in 6th century BC Babylon. And if we look around today and see the depravity and the violence and the excesses of the culture we live in, if we ever find ourselves asking, how did things get this way? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the poor get poorer? Where is God while all of this is going on? Then we need this too. We need the hope that the author of scripture extended to his hearers. So you're saying that this ancient text, even taken in its original context, is still relevant to us right here, right now. But what about the stuff we've learned in our modern age? What about science? Science is a great tool to use in our effort to act as God's body on earth to restore creation, but it's almost entirely irrelevant when we're searching for purpose and meaning in life, and especially so when we're using a two and a half thousand year old religious manuscript as the authoritative basis from which to do that. It doesn't work like that. The Bible is not a scientific text. You wouldn't use a roadmap to get instructions for installing your new TV. You don't consult a cookbook to find out about the American Civil War. Let science be done by scientists and let the Bible be what it is. (laughs) Well put. So that word creation doesn't have to be tied to some kind of scientific theory or law. Are we saying that the biblical creation account doesn't need to conform to science in order for it to be true? Well, these are separate conversations. Trying to make it so that science and religion are talking about the same thing is misrepresenting both things. It's not just weird science, it's bad religion too. There you go, two pop culture references in one. That also means that science and religion are not necessarily at odds either. 
It's not even apples and oranges. It's more like apples and, well, lightning. They, they have nothing in common. And they don't compete for anything. They're different disciplines. They do different things. And neither one negates the other. This is what I was getting at when I wrote in Answers to Giant Questions about the flood of Noah's time and how there's no need to be concerned with trying to get every flood in world geography to align with a single point in world history. And yes, we will tackle this when we get there in our study of the flood. If your approach to truth is based only in scientific empirical evidence, you are missing the point because science was never the point. The Bible is a theology book. So let's get to the point we've been straining towards over the last couple of months here. Creation is the assignment of function to a thing, not the material origin of that thing. If you want material origins, you have to get there some other way, because Genesis 1 isn't doing that. You can get material origins, but that's where apologetics and philosophy come in. I don't do that, and our text here isn't doing it either. We are going to look at it later in this season. Uh, I'm going to have a guest on the show. We're going to talk to Evan Minton from Cerebral Faith, which is an apologetics ministry that Evan runs. Some of you might be aware that I made an appearance on his podcast back in 2020, which was the Cerebral Faith podcast episode number 82 from memory. Now, in case you are skeptical of this definition of creation, allow me to proceed to the whole point of this episode. We're doing a word study as I mentioned at the start, on that word bara in the Hebrew, which comes out as create in our English translation. This is a little project I undertook myself a while ago. I started by pulling every occurrence of bara in the Bible and putting them into a spreadsheet. It comes up over 50 times, 57 to be exact. There are 46 Bible verses where it appears, so in some of those it comes up twice, and that's how we get 57 from 46 verses. I checked every verb form in the Hebrew and the English. I identified who is the subject, the person who does bara, and what is the object, the thing upon which bara is being enacted. I identified every instance where bara applies to a material thing and every place where it refers to something immaterial. Examples of material include people and animals, but then you also have immaterial things like a clean heart. Or sometimes the people aren't material at all, they're nations, which is an abstract concept, not a physical thing. I took note of every occurrence where the purpose of the action is stated plainly, every place where it's implied. For example, some passages state the purpose of the creation of man, but others don't. The purpose is implied, and we know it from the other passages that state it clearly. I also looked for examples where the Bible doesn't identify a purpose. I noticed a connection in some cases with the concept of distinction, so I made notes about that. As an example, creating the heavens and the earth implies distinction between both things, and clearing land implies making distinction between habitable and uninhabitable land. Sometimes the act of making distinction is physical separation, for example, separating heaven and earth or actually chopping wood into distinct pieces. I also made general observations on every instance of bara, including some instances where it appears in a context of killing, destruction, and even chaos. So here's what I found. The subject of the verb is nearly always God, with only five verses presenting exceptions. The exceptions follow no particular pattern of usage. There is one difference from the verses where God is the subject, and that is that they're all material objects, 
when it is humans doing bara. Where the subject is human, they are in a position of acting on behalf of God, even if they abuse that position for evil or are bringing about some harm. Overall, roughly a 50-50 mix of material and immaterial objects are referred to with bara. Similar mix of implied and affirmed function can be found. No correlation between material objects and implied or affirmed function. There's also no correlation between non-material objects and implied or affirmed function. Almost all cases express function either directly as an affirmation or indirectly as implied, with the few exceptions still able to be assigned function as implied by consensus of scripture elsewhere. In no case was there any situation where function could not be fairly easily assumed by someone familiar with scripture. Just under half of occurrences had the concept of distinction or dividing between things. There was no correlation observed between the concept of distinction and either affirmed or implied function. No correlation either with material or non-material objects. On two occasions, the reversal of distinction was observed. One with reference to the flood and one in reference to Leviathan. There were some very interesting observations. Of course, we're going to talk about those things later on. So uh, some conclusions I was able to draw from those findings. This verb bara, translated as create, cannot be limited to either material or abstract objects, but in every case the assignment of function to the created thing is either affirmed or can be implied. This shifts the emphasis from material origin and clearly places it on order and function as the goal of creation. The frequent use of distinctions suggests that it is a creative method or tool often used in creation. Distinction or dividing is clearly not a description of material creation. Distinction may be implied in all cases of affirmed function assignment, and by extension implied where function is also implied. The way to understand it is to see it as set apart for a given purpose. The instances of human bara are whether humans act as agents of the divine and they only act on material objects, not on the unseen. So that contrasts with 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 3 where uh, Paul says, don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more the earthly things. Where bara is used for evil and in 1 Samuel 2, 29 we have the uh, priests who set aside the fat portions of the sacrifices for themselves. Uh, we see the priests as God's agents are not aligned with divine will, yet bara still occurs, therefore bara can be misused. We can now define bara, or creation, as to cause the existence of something, whether material or non-material, by setting it apart according to divinely ordained functionality, either by God or by his appointed agent. So when creation happens, it's a response to divine will. It's the God of the universe setting things in order and making things as they're meant to be. Everything is created with a job to do, and it's uniquely set apart by God for that purpose. Things exist functionally by doing what they're meant to do. In other words, you be 
by doing. Let's put this into different terms. When God creates, he speaks. This is how he brings meaning, purpose and intention down from the domain of heaven, from a place of spirit and wisdom, and he imbues the material realm, the earth, with that meaning. The earth reciprocates by upholding God's word, responding to it, so that the material world represents that meaning, forming truth by doing according to the word, and thus being what God says it is. When the earth expresses heavenly wisdom, the result is truth. Truth is the essence of existence. It is the alignment of God's word and the physical universe. Where there is truth, we find order and function. Truth is the economy of the universe. Conversely, anything false ceases to function properly. If anything is contrary to God's word, it fails to be what it is meant to be. It fails to operate as it should. When people rebel against God, they cease to be all that they were created to be. They live in dysfunction and chaos. They become unstable and unpredictable, moving like the sea, blowing about like the wind. This is why we define sin uh, somewhat loosely as missing the mark. It's not matching the standard set by God's word. Remember just a minute ago I mentioned the idea of some kind of cutting or dividing that's associated with creation in a lot of these texts. That's actually the basis of a common symbol used in ancient literature. The spoken wisdom of God is portrayed as a sharp object by which reality is fashioned. It is a weapon that God or his agent may use to destroy that which doesn't conform to the divine will. This should be ringing some bells by now. In Ephesians 6, verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And it's not just a biblical motif. If you've read Answers to Giant Questions, you know about the ancient Hittite text called the Song of Ulikumi. It ends with the stone giant being defeated when Kumabi takes the knife that Ea used to divide heaven and earth at creation. He uses it to cut Ulikumi's feet off from the bottom of the abyss, which was the source of his power. The Bible tells us what really divided heaven and earth. It was the word of the Most High God. And just as God used his word to separate heaven and earth, when we get to the Tower of Babel story, we find that the weapon he uses to confound the builders is the weapon of words. That is the parallel with the song of Ilikumi. The stone giant was cut off from the source of his power by the word of the Creator. The giant ceased to exist when confronted with the sharp, double-edged sword of divine truth. That truth is only dangerous to us when we harbour falsehood or rebellion. If we align ourselves with God's word, it becomes the rock on which we stand. This is why I stress so much in my book that it is a faithful allegiance to God that saves you. The reason we can say that God is our rock is because his word is always consistent with his actions. And so reality itself conforms to his word. There is literally nothing more real, more secure, and more dependable than the Word of God. That's the point of the creation story. That's the truth you need to take home with you. God doesn't just keep His Word. The whole universe keeps His Word. You worry about stuff, but 90% of it never happens because God is faithful, and the universe itself keeps His Word. So if anything happens that seems bad to you, remember that God's got a reason for this thing. There's a purpose at work that you'll probably see later. Every day, God looks at his creation, and it's good. Having said that, there are entities at work in our world that work against the plan of God. 
Their very existence is chaos, and their goal is to take over the world. They can't beat God, but they can separate the people God loves from Him by deceiving them into rebellion. We aren't separated from God's love for us, but we can separate ourselves from Him, and that's what the enemy is counting on. It's truth versus lies, and the battle for men's souls, their allegiance, is always raging. It's going to continue, and as we see in the world around us, it's only getting worse out there. That's why the creation story is necessary to give us hope, so that when the final day of the Lord comes, that we might stand in that hope through the apocalypse. And speaking of apocalypse, next week I'm talking to Vaughan Gregory of the Christian heavy metal band Grave Forsaken, and we're going to talk about the apocalypse, about metal, about all that rock star life in the underground music scene, and sharing the gospel. Stay tuned for that one. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Sounds like an awesome interview. Looking forward to that. So, on to our giant questions Q&A. Tom, asking from the land of Facebook, wants to know, did the giants turn to stone? Well, Tom, funny you should ask, at a time when I've just referenced the song of Ulikumi. Didn't plan that at all. Uh, not. Thanks for your question, by the way. Now, unlike Peter Jackson's idea of stone giants in the Hobbit film, which appear to be a natural part of the landscape in that enchanted world, or the rock-encrusted elemental angels of... Darren Aronofsky's movie Noah, which I talked about with Joe Zaragoza on his Commentarians podcast. The Hittite vision of a terrifying living monolith was a product of divine intercourse with the earth itself. Now the catch is, when we read Tolkien or watch those movies, we get to cheat. We get real stone giants presented to us, living, moving, throwing stones the size of cars and apparently oblivious to the microscopic people below. But the Song of Ulukumi is not that kind of literature. It's not fiction. Now that might raise a few eyebrows, but let's not get carried away. This is ancient poetry, and it's designed to convey truth from a certain point of view. Not that stone giants were real, but that giants were somehow connected to the idea of a colossal stone structure that had its foundations in the deep and its top in the heavens. A structure that had something to do with 17 nations, and was thwarted by the creative tool of the Most High, as we saw earlier. A story designed to tell the tale of how the king of the land lost his position of power when his national god was defeated by another. The Tower of Babel is the Bible's way of communicating these core truths. But of course it's the Bible that we take as the authority on the matter. And archaeological evidence at Eridu backs up the biblical claim, not that of the ancient Anatolian pagans. Anyway... The point of bringing up the Song of Ulikumi in the first place is that even in the 15th century BC, there were stories of giants that were made of stone. But that's not what our mate Tom was asking. It sounds to me like Tom was more interested in the idea of human-based giants like the Nephilim or Rephaim actually turning to stone, being petrified. Now there are myths, of course, like the Greek Medusa and the other Gorgons. That might be the most well-known, but... All over the world, there are stories of giants turned to stone. 
People have for thousands of years seen shapes and forms in the landscape that they thought resembled grotesque giant human remains. The phenomenon is called pareidolia. Now seeing the Virgin Mary in your toast is one thing, but are petrified giants really another? Well, no. The difference is though, people haven't been looking at the same piece of toast for hundreds of years thinking the same thing. Stories have always been made up about rock formations to explain their shape, and these take on a life of their own. They get passed down from generation to generation, and these phenomena appear everywhere from Australia to India to South America. Over time, the stories acquire an air of truth because of their history. They start to get a, a sense of genuineness because of their antiquity. Unfortunately, and I don't say this directed at our mate Tom who brought us this question, uh, many gullible souls have been taken in by these kinds of stories. They see a face in a rock formation or a piece of red quartz that looks like a chunk of meat, and they insist that if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it must be a petrified human giant. There's one born every minute. And if you've heard that expression before, you might have heard of the Cardiff Giant. The Cardiff Giant is one of the world's most famous hoaxes. Back in 1869, an atheist by the name of George Hull commissioned a 10-foot-tall sculpture of a giant man, and he went to a great deal of trouble to make it appear as though it really was the remains of a petrified giant, accidentally discovered during the digging of a well on his cousin's property. Hull's deception was quickly discovered, and the sculpture was declared a hoax, but not before Hull's cousin had made a fortune, charging admission to see it, on the pretense that it was genuine. Eventually, the famous showman, P.T. Barnum, offered to buy the giant from its second owner, David Hannum, but his offer was refused, so Barnum had a copy made in secret, and then claimed his was the real deal. When Hannum discovered that people were paying fortunes to see Barnum's fake, fake giant, he allegedly coined the phrase, there's a sucker born every minute. So keep that in mind as you consider the reason that George Hull decided to start this elaborate hoax in the first place. He did it after having an argument at a Methodist revival meeting about the idea that the giants of Genesis 6, if they were indeed real, must certainly have been petrified in the great flood of Noah's day. Obviously, as an atheist, his position was against the reality of the pre-flood giants altogether. I've already gone into detail in my book Answers to Giant Questions about the reality of the giants themselves. But the real kicker is the petrifaction idea. Now later in this podcast, when we get to talking about the flood, we'll tackle the reality of Noah's flood, and we'll see why the petrifaction theory is really quite far-fetched. But that didn't stop a number of preachers and ministers who'd seen the sculpture with their own eyes from defending the Cardiff giant as genuine because they thought it supported the biblical text. Now I've already talked on this show in a previous episode about the likelihood of discovering remains that old. Add to that the fact that this giant was discovered in the USA, not the Middle East, and it goes from highly unlikely to highly suspicious. Of course, the geologists who examined it proved the hoax, and how stupid do those preachers look now for defending the fake giant made by an atheist in an effort to prove the Bible and validate Christianity. Again, I'm not targeting the guy who sent in this question, so no offence, Tom, but Let's all take a moment to hit the reset button on our need to prove the Bible. Forget every YouTube video you ever saw, every 19th century newspaper clipping, every photoshopped picture you've seen online, and every odd-shaped rock that someone swears must be a fossilised giant's heart or a face poking out of a hillside. Forget them all. 
Because what proves Christianity, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is the witness of a life transformed. You want external proof? Investigate the resurrection of Christ. It's indisputable. But nobody cares. They don't care because it's far away in history in another country, written in other languages. When people see you living in repentance and becoming a part of God's body on earth, dispensing His mercy to others in your daily life, then it will matter. There's your proof. Falling for hoaxes and perpetuating nonsense only damages your credibility and that of everything you claim to believe. Christ is the cornerstone. Why did Jesus talk so much about hypocrisy? Very well said as always. And that's what it is all about. Absolutely. So have you got any more for us, Tim? All right. Well, I wanted to talk a little about some so-called evidence for an early authorship of the primeval history. Listeners should know by now, but for those who came in late, my view is that the primeval history probably had early authorship, so Moses is definitely on the table. But I do believe that the final form that we've received shows evidence of significant redaction in the exilic period. Again, I'm completely okay with mosaic authorship. All I'm ruling out is the idea that nobody touched it since. We have clear evidence of that, so that's my position, and it doesn't clash with a balanced view of issues like inspiration or inerrancy, etc. So, let's start with the scripture that will be at the centre of the issue, and then we'll talk about what the issue is and where I land on it. This is the Nimrod pericope from Genesis 10, verses 8 to 12. And I'm going to start by reading from the ESV. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kalar, and Rezen between Nineveh and Kalar. That is the great city. Specifically, what we're looking at here is the centre of that narrative, the part in verse 10 where we have four cities listed, Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Let's compare that reading to the RSV. And Genesis 10, verse 10 in the RSV says, The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, and Akkad, all of them in the land of Shinar. You should have noticed here that there's a city missing, or as some will argue it was never there, from that list. The city of Kalna is omitted in the RSV in favour of the translation, all of them. So why do they do that? Well, without boring you with the details, let's just say that the word they found in the text didn't sound like any city that had previously been discovered in Shinar, and to date we still don't have evidence for Kalna as a city. And without any other text to compare it to for clarification, the decision was made to treat this as a possible copyist's error that resulted in the hypothetical original phrase, all of them, becoming unintelligible. So, copyists have picked that up and assumed it was the name of one of the cities and preserved Kalna in the text as a place name rather than translating it as all of them. Well, that's the hypothesis anyway, and it came from William F. Albright, an American archaeologist who proposed it back in 1944. Now, Albright was also a philologist, so he's not out of his depth in these waters, but there are still good reasons to question his conclusion here. Now, readers of Answers to Giant Questions will know that I take the view that Kalna is indeed a place name rather than a collective referring to the other three cities. The main reason I land there is because I recognise the literary device at play in the text, 
the use of four cities, representing the four cardinal directions and therefore symbolic of world domination. It's a well-known trope in the ancient Near East. What it does is it suggests that Nimrod ruled all of Lower Mesopotamia. In, in other words, he ruled the entire land, or the earth. And you see the same device used later in the passage when Nimrod conquers Assyria. Once again, four cities, and the fourth one has a name and isn't assumed to be a mistaken reference to the other three. Readers of my work will know that I show in my book how the Babel event fits right in the middle of the Nimrod pericope and explains the move to Assyria. And it does so without detracting from the literary form of the Babel account in Genesis 11. But that's on the side. Now, in the past, people have defended the reading of Kalner as a city by arguing quite rightly that just because a city called Kalner hasn't been found, that doesn't mean it never existed. It's the old absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence argument, which is logically valid makes good sense. We had the same argument about the Hittites. Until the early 19th century, the only knowledge we had of the Hittites came from the Old Testament. And critics argued that the entire people group was not even real because we didn't have reliable sources. Well, then someone comes along and does a dig and lo and behold, the ancient Hittite empire magically comes out of the ground and it turns out the Bible is a reliable source. Duh. So, yeah, we can't rule out the existence of Kalner just because it hasn't been found yet. Or has it? Now, some point to the existence of another place with a similar name, mentioned in Amos 6.2 and in Isaiah 10 verse 9. There is a Kalno, known from ancient Assyria. But we're in Babylonia here, so the geography isn't right. And in my opinion, that's why the author actually says... Kalneh in the land of Shinar, he's disambiguating from the better known Assyrian city to the north. And I'm not alone there. A scholar named A.S. Yehuda wrote an article in 1946 called Kalneh in Shinar, which was published in the Journal of Biblical Literature in September of that year. You can find it online. Uh, he points out, as I do, that there is no such formula employed in the list of Assyrian cities mentioned in the following verses. Now, it has been proposed that if Moses did indeed write the original primeval history, it wouldn't have been out of the question to suggest that he knew cuneiform script and may have written some of it, like place names for example, in that script. This is because the Amarna letters give us evidence that cuneiform was in use in Egypt at a time contemporary with Moses. The theory goes that if Moses wrote cuneiform, then later scribes have at some point had to copy it into Biblical Hebrew. That's not easy. It would be totally excusable if a scribe happened to get a word muddled, given how incompatible the script types are. You could easily get a word backwards and not even notice, because you're going from syllables to letters, particularly when translating a proper name that's unfamiliar. And that leaves open the possibility that a scribe may have written Kath Lamed Nun, or KLN, instead of NLK which would have translated to the Hebrew version of a place in southern Mesopotamia called Enlil-Ki. That's a real city. We know where that is. And it's not off the table in terms of how it might sit in the biblical text, because Enlil-Ki, named after the Sumerian god Enlil, is the original name of the city of Nippur. That's the place where the major temple of Enlil was built. So it certainly fits geographically and chronologically. While it may be considered unlikely that a scribe might have changed the word on purpose, and it looks like an honest and easy mistake to make, that kind of scribal wordplay isn't unheard of. 
Consider characters like Nimrod and Lamech, or a place name like Babel. All of these are alterations for polemic effect. The names were given, or modified, to belittle the object of the reference. Now a clue that this might have been intentional is that even though both the Septuagint and the Masoretic text preserve the name Kalner, the Babylonian Talmud in Yoma 10a actually interprets Kalner as Nofer, or transliterated as Nippur. So how did the Jews know that Kalner was Nippur unless they saw a connection somewhere? I think it's possible that Enlil Ki might have been intentionally written backwards to put the god it was named after back in his place. See, Enlil, god of the Sumerians, was later known to the Babylonians as Elil. And when you put Elil in Hebrew, you get Helel, as in Helel ben Shekar, better known by the poorly translated name Lucifer, son of the morning. Ring any bells? Isaiah 14? That's right, Enlil is the real name of Lucifer. So why wouldn't our scribe, working on the primeval history, take a dig at his name like he does with other bad guys and bad places in the text? Instead of recording Enlil Key, he writes it backwards, giving us Albright's famously hypothesized alternative, all of them, as a casual dismissal of the city named after the most ambitious god of all, just to rub it in. But it's kind of ironic that Albright actually interacted with Nippur and yet didn't make the connection to it even though he was dealing with the issue of the interpretation of Kalner as a philologist. He actually rejected Nippur as a possibility. But perhaps that comes down to a matter of presupposition. If you presuppose that Moses couldn't have been using cuneiform script because we haven't found any, then you might also presuppose that Kalner wasn't a real place again because we haven't found it. And as I mentioned earlier, Absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. We don't have a city called Kalner, but we do have Enlilki, a.k.a. Nippur. We don't have scripture in cuneiform, but we do have manuscript phenomena consistent with that possibility. Calling it evidence for an early or mosaic authorship is drawing a long bow, but it's an interesting option. At the end of the day, it's only because of the Yamana letters that we can suggest that Moses knew cuneiform at all, Without that, we'd be forced to assume it was a late addition to the text during the exilic period in Babylon, where cuneiform was still in use. So, this doesn't really bear on my position on the authorship of the primeval history, but it sure is fascinating to learn about what this text might have been through before we got it, and what might have been hiding behind the name of an obscure city in Shinar. All right, that's it for today's show. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to join us next week for our interview with Vaughan Gregory. See you then. All right, looking forward to it. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. 
We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.